0: Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer, and if you'd like to join in, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week it's a conversation about clinical trials and GI cancer with Dr. Stacy Stein. Dr. Stein is assistant professor of medicine and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine, and here's Dr. Anise Chagpar.
1: Stacey, maybe you can start off by telling me a little bit about GI cancers. That seems to be a really broad group. How do you how do you wrap your arms around GI cancers? How do you categorize it? Yeah, so
2: it is a, it is a broad group, um, even though we're a specialty. Um, so basically, we cover um, all of the. GI tract um, from the esophagus um, includes stomach cancer, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, um, gallbladder, biliary cancers, and then colon, colon and rectal cancers and anal cancer. So we
1: really cover
2: the whole tract, a lot of different diseases and different treatments.
1: So I know that a lot of people have kind of heard about colon cancer, and I guess in that whole spectrum, that's the most common. But can you give us a sense of how common all of the different GI cancers are, and maybe a little bit about their prognosis? Sure. So... Um, So colon cancer is the most common one. Um,
2: There's about 150,000 people a year diagnosed with colon and rectal cancer in the United States. Um, And fortunately, a lot of those patients are diagnosed at an early stage where they can have surgery and hopefully a cure. Um, some of the other diseases are less common, like pancreatic cancer, which is probably about 45,000 people in this country a year. But I think because often um, their diagnosis is at a la- later stage, um, you know, we are really focused on diseases like that for ha- developing new treatment options. Um, and some of the other cancers are less common, um, but certainly um You know, we see many patients with them and feel that the need for more treatment options, more clinical trial involvement, um, more basic research is so important.
1: Yeah, so I know that a lot of people know that pancreatic cancer doesn't tend to do really, really well. A lot of the times because of exactly what you said, which is unlike colon cancer where everybody knows that they should be getting a colonoscopy to see if they have any polyps, which can often find cancers at the earliest stage, there really isn't a screening test for pancreatic cancer, is that right? That is right. So for most of the cancers besides colon cancer in the
2: GI tract, we don't have a good screening test. And certainly there's a lot of research looking at um, potentially different blood tests that maybe could help us with that in the future. So you're right. It is important for people to get colonoscopies for colon cancer screening. Um, But sometimes, you know, for the other diseases, including pancreatic cancer, the symptoms, the early symptoms are so nonspecific that it makes it really hard, I think, for the patient and their primary care doctor to recognize what's happening.
1: So can you kind of give us a little bit of a clue about what some of those nonspecific symptoms are? Because I think that many people have heard about pancreatic cancer, Um, certainly there have been some celebrities diagnosed with pancreatic cancer who have not done well. and a lot of people might want to avoid it. So what right. symptoms should they be looking for?
2: Yeah, so so they're pretty nonspecific. You know, sometimes it's just a feeling of bloating, um, a feeling of maybe feeling full a little bit earlier when they used to be able to eat a larger meal. Um, sometimes people notice that they're having loose stools. But unfortunately, these are really yeah. symptoms when you think about it that Everybody has had it sometime or another, you know. Certainly, weight loss is always a concern um, when someone's losing weight. Um, and maybe I'm a little bit of a pessimist, but I feel like even when people are trying to lose weight, when it's when it's kind of easy to do, that that's a little bit of a concern to me. Um, you know, and obviously abdominal pain. Um, certainly, jaundice, uh, when someone's skin turns yellow, is a very concerning sign that we have to. Look, um, even though that's coming from the liver, that's often a first sign of pancreatic cancer. That the that the tumor in the pancreas is actually blocking the flow of the liver.
1: Yeah. So so certainly with those those symptoms, I mean, as you were rattling them off, I was thinking, I can think of you know a day in the last week or two that I've had many of those symptoms, albeit not jaundice and abdominal pain, um, but but many of those symptoms. And so, are the, are there any real kind of warning signs aside from the jaundice and um, abdominal pain that doesn't go away that would really trigger people to go to their doctor? Or is this really something where, you know, um, you have to wait until you get those symptoms before you really present? And is it too late when you have those symptoms? That's a good question. So sometimes uh, people may have symptoms of
2: malabsorption, meaning that they have like loose stools that may... Um, smell funny or float, which is um, not normal. Um, And what is interesting is that um, we know that because the pancreas is starting to not function well, um, many people develop diabetes in the six-month window before their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, though, the rate of diabetes is so high Mm -hmm. that The vast majority of people being diagnosed with diabetes don't necessarily have pancreatic cancer, so I think that's still not um, enough of a target group to
1: screen. Um, But but that's certainly a known fact. Yeah. So people who are just diagnosed with diabetes all shouldn't go and get their pancreas evaluated with a CT scan or something.
2: Right. So we don't have right. Absolutely. Um, But I do think that um, you know if it's. Uh, There is research in developing blood tests or stool tests that may help us diagnose cancers in the GI tract at an earlier stage. And the reason why that's so important is um, for most of these cancers... Surgery is a very important treatment modality, and when the tumor is found early enough where it's possible to remove everything with surgery, even if we may be giving other treatments like chemotherapy and radiation in conjunction with the surgery, um, that is usually our best chance at potentially offering a
1: cure. So... So then that really gets to, you know, should, with all of the research that's going on into early detection, maybe there's a blood test, maybe there's a stool test, are these things that um, you would envision everybody would be eligible for, or are these things um, things that you would say, well, if you've had... Particular predisposing symptoms, or if you've had a family history, that this would be a more tailored group that would be screened with these blood tests and stool tests?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question. I think that if the test was developed that was good enough, sensitive and specific enough, and hopefully inexpensive enough, they could become more universal screening tools. In general, most of these diseases um, occur with aging um, so they're more common in older people um, but certainly we do see patients that are younger than expected and we would like to avoid all of you know all of our patients having these cancers.
1: Yeah, so so let's suppose, you know, so it sounds like one of the big hurdles that we need to overcome is really finding these cancers early. Um, but let's suppose somebody does present with symptoms, right? They've got jaundice or they've got malabsorptive symptoms. They've got these loose stools. They've been losing a bit of weight. They go to their doctor. How are these actually diagnosed? Because I can imagine that even if you had all of these symptoms, perhaps with the exception of jaundice they're so nonspecific. How how does your doctor actually get from, I have all of these vague symptoms, to guess what, you've got pancreatic cancer. Can you walk us through that diagnostic paradigm? So sometimes people wind up having a CAT scan as their
2: um, initial test. Um, And that may be because of abdominal pain, especially um, if they're in the emergency room, they'll often have a scan. Um, Many people... Uh, develop jaundice as their initial symptom. And then that would prompt any physician to um, get imaging and blood work. And um, sometimes that starts with an ultrasound and then moves to a CAT scan. Um, And certainly the blood work is important too to see the, the liver function. And then what's important also is that regardless of which cancer we're discussing, Patients need a biopsy, Mm -hmm. um, and depending on where the tumor is located, the biopsies are done in different ways. If we're trying to get a biopsy from the pancreas, that usually means um, that uh, a patient needs an endoscopy where a gastroenterologist will put a scope um, down their throat. Um, down into the stomach and then they can actually put a needle through the wall of the GI tract into the pancreas to get a sample of tissue. So it's really important before we think about treatment options that we have a biopsy uh, so we make sure that that it is uh, the type of cancer that we think it is and then complete imaging so we get a sense of the stage meaning where it's located if it's spread um, and if it's surrounding blood vessels that would make it not possible to do a surgery.
1: So, you know, when we talk about pancreatic cancers, like so many cancers that we talk about, um, there's often so many different kinds of cancer. So are there different kinds of pancreatic cancer um, that are maybe managed differently or have different prognosis? So I think
2: when most people say pancreatic cancer, what they really mean is pancreatic adenocarcinoma, and that's the vast majority of of tumors that arise in the pancreas, probably about at least 85% of them. Less commonly, there are neuroendocrine tumors, and uh, those overall usually have a better prognosis, they're slower growing. Occasionally, we're surprised that the pathology comes back as a lymphoma, Hmm. and that's pretty uncommon. Um, And then obviously the treatment is, is very different. So it's really important that we have that
1: tissue. Yeah, and even in pancreatic adenocarcinoma, if we narrow our focus even more, In many cancers, you know, these days we're talking all about tumor profiling and genomics and different targets. Does the same thing play out in pancreatic cancer?
2: Not really. So in pancreatic cancer, actually, there are just a handful of mutations that are present in the vast majority of tumors. Hmm. Um, And unfortunately, we don't have any drugs as of yet that target those common mutations, the most common one being KRAS. There is one exception to that though. We now know that um, there are patients with mutations in the BRCA genes that occur in pancreatic cancer. And so people may be familiar with those genes because they're much more commonly discussed in breast cancer and ovarian cancer. And people often think of them as being familial um, and uh, often people from a Jewish Ashkenazi background. But we now know that about 8 to 10% of pancreatic cancers also um, have these mutations. And so we're actively now screening patients to find uh, those people that carry a BRCA mutation. And we do have clinical trials open uh, looking at drugs like Olaparib, which we know are active in ovarian cancer with BRCA mutations, hmm. looking to see if there's activity in pancreatic cancer.
1: Cool. Um, you know, one of the things in uh, BRCA patients in breast is that we found that at least their breast cancers are Potentially more sensitive to platinum-based agents, and so some of the clinical trials that we have open in the breast cancer arena are treating patients with randomizing patients either to receive standard of care uh, chemotherapy before surgery, or uh, chemotherapy with a platinum agent before surgery to really see whether the platinums are better in these in these patients. Has that been looked at in pancreatic cancer? Well, so. So there are two very main uh, two
2: main active regimens in pancreatic cancer, and one of them, uh, the, the name of the uh, treatment is FOLFIRINOX, and one of the drugs in that regimen is oxaliplatin, which is a platinum drug. So most patients are treated with a with a platinum drug in their in their treatment.
1: Regardless. Well, that is so interesting, and we're going to learn much more about clinical trials and pancreatic cancer after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more with my guest, Dr. Stacy
0: Stein. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 1,500 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Connecticut alone this year. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, And as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the one at Yale and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve the management of the disease by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in a more patient-specific treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Stacy Stein. We're talking about GI cancers and pancreatic cancer in particular and clinical trials. And right before the break, Stacy, we were talking about some of the chemotherapeutic regimens uh, that you use for pancreatic cancer. And you were mentioning that um, many patients, or at least some patients with a BRCA mutation actually can get um, uh, uh, pancreatic cancer. And very similar to breast, they're treated with a platinum-containing agent. Tell us a little bit more about different chemotherapeutic regimens in pancreatic cancer. Are they effective and, and what things are novel in that space that are going on now? Yeah. So
2: for a very long time, there was one drug that was known to be active in pancreatic cancer, gemcitabine. And there were many clinical trials done that unfortunately showed no benefit over gemcitabine. And then a few years ago, there were two trials that showed regimens that had more benefit that we regularly use now. One of them is called Fulfirinox, and the other is gemcitabine plus a second drug uh, named abraxane. And so those are two active regimens that definitely do uh, prolong the length of people's lives. Um, and certainly, you know, most patients wind up getting most regimens, both regimens. Um, so we're always looking for now novel drugs, new drugs that can add. Um, other treatment options for our patients. Um, But one, one thing to take a step back that I think is of interest is, you know, even for the patients that have surgery, so patients with early stage disease that we don't see any spread of disease on imaging, it's not involving the blood vessels near the Uh, Tumor. For a lot of different cancers, if you're able to do surgery at an early stage like that, patients often do very well, like in breast cancer and colon cancer. But what we see in pancreatic cancer is that even with surgery, there is a high recurrence rate. Mm -hmm. And we think that that's probably because the cells spread even before the surgery, even Mm -hmm. though we can't see them on imaging. So, one focus. in pancreatic cancer is to increase that cure rate in patients who can go for surgery. And different people are developing different clinical trials to look at this problem. Um, but many of them focus on similar practices, which include giving chemotherapy even before the surgery. So we call that neoadjuvant treatment. And I think that that potentially is going to be an important um, part of these patients' treatment in the future. So for instance, we have a clinical trial now that's being uh, led by one of my colleagues, Dr. Jill Lacey, um, of giving Fulfirinox chemotherapy for patients who are going to have surgery before and after their surgery, and none of these trials are complete yet, so we don't have um, you know data to share yet. But uh, we're hopeful that these types of trials are going to imp- improve the cure rate for our patients.
1: So, Stacy, in that in that trials is is standard of care to g- do surgery followed by. Uh, full farinox in these early stage cancers and really now the experimental arm is adding a neoadjuvant piece to that? No. So actually the standard of care is surgery
2: followed by six months of gemcitabine alone. Hmm. But I want to say I find the term standard of care a little bit misleading because Mm -hmm. I think it implies something that is of a lot of benefit that Mm -hmm. should be what we do for everyone. And in this situation, the standard of care is really lacking. So there's an improvement to doing gemcitabine versus no treatment after surgery but it's a small benefit and we want the benefit to be much greater for our patients mm-hmm. so I, I do feel that given the information we have for what is standard of care now we really should be encouraging patients to go on clinical trials um, we actually just have we have another trial open where patients get either gemcitabine or the combination of gemcitabine and abraxane after surgery if they haven't received chemotherapy before surgery and that study recently just finished um, accruing patients to, so hopefully we'll have some data back from that in a year or so.
1: Right, and that's also the regimen that you said had shown benefit in other right in other studies. Right, right. so I think your point is a is an absolute spot on one, which is you know standard of care. We talk about standard of care in quotes. Um, but really, it's it's not the, the emphasis is on the standard part, not on the care part. Because so often we find that people really do get the best care and the best outcomes on trial because you're getting tomorrow's standard of care today. You're getting what we think is better. And we know that people who participate in, in clinical trials tend to do better.
2: Right. And we do know that the, the, the regimens that we're talking about giving people pay- patients around their surgery are regimens that we already know are effective in pancreatic cancer for patients with more advanced disease.
1: So... So, um, so it's so interesting when just to go back to the whole neoadjuvant um, concept that that is something that um, we looked at in breast cancer many years ago as well. And so, it's so interesting to really see the parallels between different tumor types. So, we know that, for example, in breast cancer, um, giving chemotherapy up front followed by surgery was exactly the same as. Uh, surgery upfront followed by chemo, except that giving uh, the chemotherapy upfront really had some advantages in terms of making the disease more resectable and, and allowing more breast conservation. So, do you think that that is another potential advantage uh, in patients who have pancreatic cancer, that maybe you can shrink the disease and make the surgery, which can sometimes be, as I understand it, a fairly major surgery, a little less morbid? Well.
2: I'm not sure about that. It is a big surgery, um, I, and I think even when the tumor is very small, you know, it is. It's always going to be a big surgery. Um, depending on location of the tumor, um, it it may involve removing part of the pancreas, part of the stomach, part of the uh, small intestine. If the tumor is at the other end of the pancreas by the spleen, it could involve removing the spleen and part of the pancreas. So they're big surgeries. I think really what our goal is in this situation is to try to prevent the high recurrence rate. Mm -hmm. And uh, that
1: is really our main focus. Right, and and so, but that would also wouldn't wouldn't giving chemotherapy after the surgery, which it, it already happens, um, wouldn't that also get rid of micrometastatic disease? Well, it probably does. I think the potential benefit of
2: giving the chemotherapy before the surgery is that um, that may even improve the rate higher. to to decrease the micrometastatic disease. And also, um, after surgery, there's a potential risk of people having complications from their surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone has an infection or is in the hospital a little bit longer than we thought, they may not feel up to getting the chemotherapy as soon. And then there's a longer window of time where they haven't gotten the treatment, um, and, and people are recuperating from their surgery. They're getting used to eating again with the changes uh, in the anatomy. And so we feel that it might be easier for people to start the chemotherapy prior to the surgery, have the advantage of the benefit of that, then get their surgery and then finish the chemotherapy.
1: Has there been any thought to giving all of the chemotherapy upfront uh, instead of having more of a sandwich technique?
2: You know that's a that's an interesting idea. I think you know you're trying to balance um, having the surgery done in a reasonable time frame, and potentially, uh, you know, we know that there's a risk of extending that out. That if the tumor becomes resistant to that chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. that we might lose our window of opportunity for surgery. So I think the sandwich approach, which is one that we often uh, use in other cancers like stomach cancer, is kind of a balance between getting the maximal response to the treatment and not losing our window for surgery.
1: Yeah, but certainly, I mean, doing clinical trials like this really helps you to get the right answer. Uh, It's the data from those kinds of trials that says, you know, doing a sandwich technique is better than doing the outback only technique or doing everything up front uh, is either better or worse than doing a sandwich. And so I think that's one of the big reasons why it's so great to have patients participating in these trials is that it really helps us to figure out What's best? Yeah.
2: I mean, for me, that's my passion. I love taking care of my patients, and I want to also advance the field and have better treatment options for the patients I have now and the patients that we're going to have in the future, and I think it's just its so important to have new treatment options to offer our patients, especially when we know that the
1: standard of care is not as good as we want it to be. Yeah. The prognosis, I I mean, especially in pancreatic cancer, the prognosis being as dismal as it is, we've got a a big window of improvement to do. Um, So tell us a little bit more about how people figure out what regimens, you know, we talk about clinical trials all the time. And we talk about, well, you know, we're now trying fulfirinox versus gemcitabine, or we're trying gemcitabine plus um, abraxane. How do you figure out which is the next regimen that you're going to, quote, try in in a clinical trial? Is it, you know, you kind of wake up one morning and say, hmm, I think I'm going to try this? Or, or yeah. what's the science behind that?
2: right so so we're always looking to work with our partners in the lab um, for novel agents that may be coming out and showing a benefit so for instance uh, there's another trial that we're participating in as part of um, the southwest oncology group which is a cooperative group that we're part of at yale and it's combining fulfirinox which is a regimen i already mentioned that we know is active in pancreatic cancer but what's interesting is we know that in the pancreas around the tumor there's these changes that happen where it's hard for the chemotherapy to get into the tumor Mm -hmm. there's this stromal reaction and the pressure is very low in the tumor Um, these cells kind of get together and almost form a wall around it and there's a drug available that um, works on these cell-cell bonds um, and hopefully breaks them down to allow the chemotherapy to get in better. So even though it's not a chemotherapy drug, it's um, it's a hyaluronidase, mm-hmm. uh, which is an enzyme that works on these cell-cell bonds. And we're giving that in combination with the fulferinox to see if we can make the the chemotherapy drugs that we already have more effective yeah Uh, so that's a trial that's ongoing that we're excited about participating in
1: and so how do you um, how do you figure out um, whether other modalities are also going to be of benefit I mean I know in a lot of cancers we also add radiation but I haven't heard you mention radiation in pancreatic cancer so
2: so there there is um, potentially a role for radiation so when So when I think about the treatment options and the way that I explain them to my patients is some treatment is local and some treatment is systemic. So chemotherapy is systemic. It goes into the blood vessels and it goes everywhere. Options like surgery or radiation are more local treatments, so we have to be targeting a certain area. So there actually is a group of patients who may not be candidates for surgery because the tumor is around the blood vessels in the area of the pancreas, but they also don't have disease that's spread outside of that area, and we call that group locally advanced. So locally mm-hmm. advanced pancreatic cancer is a group that um, overall has uh, potentially you know, there's a role for radiation in treating those patients. Um, often what we uh, the treatment that we give these patients is chemotherapy and then sometimes move to radiation. Um, and I have many patients who've had chemotherapy and then radiation and then actually are able to take a break from all treatment. Um, we know that the t- the tumor's not gone and that it's not a curative treatment, Um, but I think for pancreatic patients to be able to have sometimes more than a year off from treatment um, with the disease kind of controlled and we get scans every few months to keep a close eye on things, um, it really offers them a very good quality of life and ability to travel and and do things and be pretty symptom-free for that time. There have been different trials looking at radiation, and to be honest, I think the role is not clear. Um, The trials haven't shown a clear benefit, although some of the trials were with other chemotherapy options and not with the better options that we have now. Um, So we're working actually on opening some new trials for patients with locally advanced disease to really look at the benefit of, uh, of chemotherapy regimens that we have now with radiation.
0: Dr. Stacey Stein is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Godet, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.